Welcome, everybody, to the Be More Bookish podcast. This podcast features chats with all manner of bookish people, from book creators, readers, educators, publishers, and more. Settle in for a good old-fashioned chinwag. About books, of course. So come on, why not be more bookish? Why not, hey? Hello, I'm Adrian Beck, an author and also at the helm of BeMoreBookish.com, an independent online bookshop that celebrates all creators, but particularly Australian creators. In this episode, the book we're featuring is the new thriller, Kill Your Husbands, and we talk to the author, Jack Heath. Along for the ride, as guest co-host, is another thriller writer, Gabriel Bergmoser. These two write amazing books and clearly think deeply about their craft. I could listen to them talk about their approach to writing for hours, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy our conversation as well. Don't forget to listen to the end of the episode for the secret code word that gives you a 20% discount on both Jack Heath's new book, Kill Your Husbands, as well as Gabriel Bergmoser's new book, The Caretaker, when you buy either or both from bemorebookish.com. Today's ep was recorded on Wurundjeri land, and I hope you enjoyed the chat. Jack Heath, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on the new book, Kill Your Husbands, which is a very, very catchy title. We might get to your titles in a sec, but I want to introduce a wonderful friend of yours and a friend of mine, a fellow Melbourne creative like myself. Uh, Gabe Bergmosa is also joining us. Gabe, thanks for coming on board today. Thanks so much for having me along. It's great to have these two masters of their craft here, some gory thriller crime writers at Australia's best. I love it. So I can't wait to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. But uh, Gabe's here to help probe Jack Heath particularly today. <laughs> I don't like not, the not... way you phrased that at all, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So pu- purely, uh, purely theoretically, uh, we're going to get to the bottom of this awesome new book, Kill Your Husbands, which Jack's just released, which is taking uh taking the country by storm in time for christmas which is awesome but jack we might start in the obvious place if you could perhaps explain the concept um for those that haven't had a chance to pick it up just yet kill your husbands yeah okay so um i need to be pretty clear first off that it is fiction um it is not as <laughs> has been alleged a how-to guide or a, uh, a self-help a book. To arms for <laughs> disaffected women or anything although i'm also conscious of the fact that once you write a book and put it out into the world you cannot any longer control what people choose to take from it um okay so three couples go on holiday together they've been friends since high school but each of them has um a marriage that's secretly in a little bit of trouble and so they go on this kind of digital detox retreat to sort of refresh and reset uh reset and reconnect and stuff and um one night uh, after a few drinks a game of truth or dare goes a bit too far and the idea of partner swapping comes up and it's a joke at first but in the end they decide to give it a try they figure they'll switch out the lights so no one knows who anyone else was with that way it won't be awkward later um, but unfortunately, yeah, that'll fix lights... it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, again, I don't think this would work in real life. I think it'll be pretty <laughs> awkward lights on or lights off. But what I do know is that when the lights come back on, one of the men is dead. And 
So firstly, no one can agree who he was with. And secondly, their phones still don't work. The car key is still missing. So they're like stranded on the mountain with this dead body and they're not sure what happened to him and the killer is just getting started. So that's the Mm. basic pitch for this kind of locked room partner swap lovers to enemies murder mystery. I love it. And it's not based on a party that you and Gabe went to once, is it? Uh, no, no, no. I, I promised everyone at that party that what happened at that party would stay at the party. Um, <laughs> um, actually, I have some high school friends who I used to go on holidays with, um, holidays not unlike this one on a pretty regular basis, like we'd go once a year. Um, but those trips... So we used to play Murder in the Dark. So you can obviously see like where the, um, that was my favorite uh, fun time activity for those holidays. And there also weren't enough beds to go around. So you'd often end up like sharing with someone who wasn't in your partner. So wasn't your partner. So there was nothing, you know, especially kinky about those trips, but you can definitely look at this book and you can kind of, see the the dna of those formative experiences of my early 20s but that's the kind of wild schoolies type trip that you go on when you're sort of young and carefree it was interesting to me to imagine like back in those days i thought this is such a cliched thing to say but i thought those days would last forever you know like i figured my friends and i would keep going to that coast house every year for the rest of our lives and of course, we didn't. Some of us had kids, others didn't. Some of us had money, others didn't. Um, but this book was kind of a thought experiment. Like, what if we did go back in our mid-30s with all those points of tension, like the the money, the kids, the the fact that things happened in high school that you you kind of reacted one way at the time and you have different feelings about it now, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe it's for the best that I no longer get invited to those, to those holidays. I certainly won't be now that this book has been published. That's right. If you're wanting to get out of those sort of catch-ups, I think you've done the right thing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so title, the title, Kill Your Husbands, um, and the concept, is that very much in the forefront before you actually do all the hard work or did you have to retrofit the titles? Uh, how did you come Um, about that? Oh, yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, so in the case of um, this particular book, I definitely came up with the the three couples on the mountain um, years ago as a sort of premise for a crime novel. And then uh, more recently, I was I was starting to wonder, you know, could this be a Timothy Blake mystery? Timothy Blake being my my cannibal FBI consultant from my other series. Or should this be a standalone or what? And then after Kill Your Brother did really well, I went, uh, okay, so I could I could reuse the cop from Kill Your Brother to investigate this um this particular murder mystery, this sort of double double homicide up on the mountain. And I think but for Kill Your Brother, the title made sense, right? Because it was about a woman trapped in an underground septic tank with her brother and they're both being held prisoner by another woman who wants her to kill her brother and she doesn't know why. So that made perfect sense. For Kill Your Husbands, it kind of made less sense, but I wanted to sort of thematically connect it to um to the the first one. So this is a standalone, but I, I like the idea that people who enjoy this book might go back and read the other one as well. Um, 
So originally it was kill your husband. And then my agent pointed out that like the first thing that happens when the cop walks into the house in basically chapter one or chapter two is she finds two dead husbands on the floor. So um, actually this might've been my publisher saying, maybe we should call it kill your husbands instead. And then um, my agent said, oh, that has a nice sort of frisson of feminist rage to it. Like burn your bras, kill your husbands. And I thought, oh, that's a good line. We could, we could include that in the book. So, but I'm, I'm thrilled that the title is, you know, eye-catching enough that um, I've seen people in the bookstore just kind of walk past it and do a double take and then pick it up. So um, hopefully that means it's it's going to do well. I saw the first copy I signed for another person was a man who wandered into the bookshop and then just sort of saw Kid Your Husbands and picked it up. So he hadn't noticed me yet. Um, but I introduced myself and he said, yeah, I was just thinking this might be a good anniversary present for my wife. <laughs> so I signed it for it. Yeah. Well, I've got it as a Christmas present for my wife. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of husbands that uh, pick up on the irony there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Although, you know, it turns out that there are some husbands out there with what seem to be pretty fragile egos from from my perspective. There's there's a lot of kind of men who are getting a bit sensitive about this title. I can only imagine how they would feel if Clementine Ford had written it instead of me or Van Badham or someone like that. But it's been fascinating kind of watching that unfold online, like, you know, just sort of watching slightly from afar of like, you know, just the way in which some people purely the fact that there is a book that exists with this title, like, you know, without even really knowing what's in it or what's it about or realizing that it's fiction, people are reacting like with this, you know, I say people, I mean, you know, particularly uh, men of a certain type are reacting with like such an <laughs> outrage over it. And, you know, like what, like, like, and I think I asked you something to this effect of the book launch, but like, why do you think that is? Yeah, um, I'm not really sure. And one of the things that makes sort of the the trolling interesting is because the motivations are so opaque, right? Like, hmm. um, it could be that some of these people have been following me since mid-year when I expressed my support for the voice to parliament because I was like buried under, you know, angry trolls as soon as that happened. And some yeah. of them have kind of sort of followed me ever since. So it could still be that. But also... I did, um, uh, again, mid-year, it was June or July, there was an event called Wild Cuts for Wildlife where I, I got a purple mohawk to, to raise money to protect wilderness habitat. And the I thought it was a pretty cool haircut, but I'm not, I wasn't oblivious to the fact that it made me look pretty gay too. And so, and it's weird how many of the trolls, because that's still my author photo, even though I have regular hair now, it's weird how much of a homophobic edge there seems to be to the trolling as well. But I'm like, okay, do you hate me because you think I'm gay or do you just hate me and the hair is like a particular thing that you can fixate on, like an excuse or what? But in any case, I mean, it's I, I'm conscious of the fact that you can't write a book with a shocking title and then complain about people getting shocked by the title, right? I don't want to. Um, uh, I I knew that this was a risk when I when you're provocative, people will get provoked, <laughs> and so that's kind of fine. And I've made it worse for myself by responding to all these trolls, largely for algorithmic reasons. Like if people are commenting on your posts, then you've got to try to keep the conversation going just to rise to the top of the um the fetid slurry that is <laughs> Facebook and social media in general. So um, 
Yeah, I don't know what it is they hate about it. So it seems a bit misogynistic. It seems a little bit homophobic. It seems, with the case of the voice to parliament haters, uh, a little bit racist. I don't, I don't really know. But I've stopped responding because while it was actually kind of fun for me to get into arguments with these people, it wasn't just algorithmic purposes. I, when I was interrogating my own motives, I was realizing that. Being hated by such transparently bad people made me feel noble and good, which is probably not like a a healthy thing. <laughs> so I decided to stop responding. And also it was starting to, you know, upset my family. It's all well and good for me to say, well, you know, haters going to hate and I'm going to keep poking the bear. But when it's starting to upset the people I care about because they care about me and don't like to see me being attacked, I went, okay, this has probably got far enough. So I'll, I'll just do block and mute like they teach you in health class these days. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Hey, Gabe, what was the first the first uh, hint or did you get to read an early version or what was your first reaction to uh, Kill Your Husbands when you first picked it up? Yeah, so, I mean, like, I think, I think in this case, I mean, one of the reasons I'm such a sort of... Uh, loud advocate for this book is because I read it at a point where I was really struggling to read anything. Like, I, I mean that like, you know, I, whatever I picked up, whether it was like, you know, something I've been sent to read, like to quote on or whatever, or whether it was something I'd been meant to read, read for a while, I, I just couldn't seem to engage. I couldn't seem to get into it. I couldn't seem to focus. And, and I really dislike that because, you know, I, I like to be reading all the time. You know, I like to always kind of have a book on the go. And I'm not like, when I was a teenager, I was like a really fast reader. Like I could smash through books really quickly. I'm not anymore. Just like, you know, with like life and everything and and whatever. But like, I would just kind of find myself like starting books, not finishing them, kind of getting, you know, get, getting bogged down at some point, starting something else, not finishing, getting bogged down, repeat, 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 repeat. And then it was like, I was on a trip to the country and I remembered that I had Kill Your Husbands on my laptop because Jack had sent it to me. And, and, and I think like it's testament to like how bad this slump was that I hadn't like immediately torn through it because, you know, like I love Jack's work. I'm always excited to read a new one when it comes out. Like, you know, he's, you know, I'm not just a friend of Jack's. I'm a fan of Jack's, you know? So I was like, Oh, that's right. I've got, I've got kill your husbands here. So I opened it up and I was sitting on this bus and I started to read. And, and again, like, you know, I, I like additional to the whole reading slump of it all. Like I, I'm not a very good laptop reader. Like, you know, I, I much prefer having a physical copy. So even then I was like, look, you know, I'll just read a few chapters and just see if I can kind of, you know, start to get into it and everything. And I started and I just couldn't stop. Like I was sitting on this three hour long country bus ride, just like scrolling furiously through chapters. And then the next day, like the reason I was going up to my country, I was going to my hometown. I was going skiing with some friends. And like, I literally left the ski slopes like half an hour early to sit in the bar and keep reading this book. Like that's where I was at with it. You know, I could not put it down and the whole day I was up on the mountain I was just kind of like all right come on come on come on I want to get back to it I want to get back to it what's going to happen next what's going to happen next and so you know I think it's um I mean I think it's a few things like obviously it's a pretty irresistible title and premise like right from the start but mm. and and like there, there's something very deft that Jack does here where it's like and, and I think in other hands it could have been contrived and it could have been difficult but because it alters well, even even present, my own like, hands as little as a year or two ago probably to be honest well and you know that's hence the drafting process but um yeah. but you know there, there was definitely a point where you know one thing that i found really fascinating was the fact that like in the that there's the past and the present timelines and in the present we know that two people are dead and one person is missing or yeah that's where we're at two people are dead and one person is missing 
in the past, we're following the story that led up to that. But the thing is, in the present, we don't know who the dead and the missing ones are and who the alive ones are. So we're always kind of trying to sort of overlay what we know about the surviving or not surviving characters in the present over the people in the past and who might be that and who might be that and how does this line up and how does this match up and everything. So, so that obviously creates like an immediate intrigue. But I think the biggest thing for me was the way that the book plays with perspective. And it never goes quite as far as being like a Rashomon thing where you know, one person's point of view on something is like drastically different to somebody else's. And it's like kind of who's lying, who's telling the truth or like, you know, how, how skewed are their perspectives, but it's more, and I think this is a trickier thing to pull off and a more effective thing to pull off when it is pulled off successfully, which I think it is in this book where you kind of find yourself empathizing with one character and reading sort of their story, their background, their motivation, what's driving them. And then you immediately shift to somebody else's character, uh, somebody else's perspective, a different character's perspective. And the way that they see that character and the way that they see the circumstance is drastically different from the way the character A did. And nothing, none of the actual events or the dialogue or whatever are different than what we saw in the previous chapter. It's purely the perspective and the motivation that informs it. And it completely enriches the dynamics between these six people. And it kind of creates a situation where it's like of the six people who you read about, you go, I kind of get all of their perspectives. And some of them are really not very nice people, but I kind of completely understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, what's driving them. And that just makes it so much more complex because you know at some point a couple of people are going to end up dead. And you know at some point this kind of powder keg of like, you know, lies and secrets and marital resentment and all of this is going to ignite and is going to blow up. But the anticipation for that becomes so much more juicy because of how expertly and how effectively we are placed in all these people's completely clashing perspectives. So like this book, I mean, I just – I. And I feel like every time I speak to Jack, I'm kind of like gushing over like, you know, how much I love the book. But, but that's also, you know. He that, hasn't that, stopped you, though, I've noticed. No, it hasn't, no, it hasn't stopped me. But, like, but it's also, it, it is because truly this book got me reading again properly. Like this book really kind of brought me back into being like, I finished this and I was like, all right, next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And I kind of haven't looked back since then. And I completely attribute that to like how easy to read and how engaging and how thought-provoking and how fun I found this book to be. So, you know, I... I like, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And like at the, I mean, I, I launched the book here in Melbourne and the whole time I was like, all I want to do is like, you know, talk to Jack about how good this book is and talk to everybody in the audience. <laughs> who like, presumably all going to buy a book anyway, because they're a book launch between all of them being like, buy this goddamn book and read it. Cause it's really, really good. <laughs> Thank you for all of that, Gabe. That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, have you ever read I'm giving my marriage a year by Holly Wainwright? No, I haven't. Yeah, I that was a book that got me out of a reading slump a, a couple of years ago. And it was one of those books that so it, it's about a, a marriage sort of falling apart or at least being on the rocks. But it has those sort of alternating perspective things where everything the everything the wife does is reasonable from her own perspective and monstrous from her husband's perspective and yeah, right. um, everything the husband does, you know, by, vice versa. And when I was reading it, it was one of those sort of bittersweet uh, moments. You know how when you read something as a reader and it's so good that on the one hand it makes you so happy because because you're reading a great book and on the other hand it makes you miserable because you're like, I could never write anything this good, <laughs> you know. So yeah. that book 
definitely um, inspired me to write this one, I think. I, I was reading that book and going, oh, man, I wish I could write something like this. And, of course, Kill Your Husbands is a, a very different book because it's a murder mystery. That's, you know, its defining feature. And I'm Giving My Marriage a Year has no crime in it whatsoever. But I guess it just goes, it, it speaks to the importance of kind of challenging yourself to read outside the genre you intend to write in, like um, to, to sort of read beyond your comfort zone and pick up things that don't look like your kind of book. Like I only bought I'm Giving My Marriage a Year because uh, Holly Wayne writes on the Mamma Mia podcast and I knew my wife likes the Mamma Mia podcast, so I, I bought it as a gift for her. And then I found, so before I'd read the book, um, I walked in and found my wife like reading she had the book and she was on the couch and she was crying. And I was like, what, what's happened? Cause my wife is not really a cry while reading type person. I assumed something else had happened. And she, uh, she looks at me and she says like, you're such a Josh. You never play the guitar anymore. <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, Oh man, I've got to read this book. And, and I did, but it was one of those books that just, you know, makes you feel really seen as well. Like um, all, all those things that, individuals or couples we all experience them but we don't really talk about them and so therefore when you when you see it on the page in someone else's book like the book of a stranger you're like okay it's not just me who goes through this this is something that a lot of people experience and it makes you feel a little less lonely so that was a wonderful thing about that book and so it was definitely something that I tried to um to channel to channel in this one as well uh well I mean there's parallel storylines as, as Gabe's touched on there's parallel storylines there's multiple point of views there's cliffhangers I mean is this was this the hardest book you've ever had to write Jack or did, and did you feel like you're pushing yourself or was this like a a walk in the park for Jack Heath these days <laughs> Uh, no, as uh, as I'm sure you already suspect, Adrian, this was a very, very, very difficult book to write. I, I really gave it everything I had. And so much so that now, I mean, you can tell by looking at me that I'm a bit burned out. I never really understood before. So a good friend of mine, a guy named Will Kostakis, he's a wonderful writer, but he is someone where I think uh, unlike me, so I write, you know, two or three or sometimes even four books a year, whereas Will only does one every year or one every two years. And he puts a lot of himself into his work. And I remember him telling me, I hope he wouldn't mind me saying this, but I remember he was on the, he was shortlisted for like the Prime Minister's Literary Award or something. And he didn't win, but one of the judges afterwards told him that he was like so close or something, which was supposed to be encouraging, but was instead you know, left him in a state of deep despair because he's like, I gave this everything I had. I put so much of myself onto the page. It's, I'm not sure I can do that again. It's not like I can come back next year with um, with a, another beating heart that I've ripped out of my chest and presented to the readers. I, I just, I, I did this once and only once and it wasn't good enough. That's kind of how I feel about this book as well. Like I, I try to, um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but since the response to it has been so warm, um, it, it's all well and good for me to say, oh, I'd love to write another book about Kiara, the um, the detective or something. But if the publisher says, oh, we want another book with the same kind of feel, like the same genre of sort of 
relationships um, relationships being intimately dissected and pulled apart and trust falling away and and stuff like that. I'm not sure I could do it. I, I feel like um, having put so much of myself into this book, I'm not sure I have enough self left to do another one like it. But I'm very proud that I did it on this one occasion. It, is it exhausting? It, like, it, was it like? Did you find yourself writing in shorter bursts? Like, when you say you're putting so much of yourself into it, I mean, how does that practically play out? Yeah, no, it, uh, exhausting probably isn't. Well, it, it's exhausting in the sense that you know, after after playing like a really good game of footy or or going on a really long run or something, you're exhausted, but you're also satisfied. There's a certain catharsis to it, and the fact that I was writing the kind of book that I would genuinely love to read meant I was actually able to focus on it for longer hours rather than shorter. Like, so when I'm writing for kids, that's quite difficult because I can't just make decisions based on what I do or don't like. I have to imagine what kids would or wouldn't like, which is sometimes the same. I'm a bit immature, but not, not that immature probably. So um, but in this case, this book required um, me to stay hyper-focused on three things, like what is actually happening, what does the character think is happening, and what does the reader think is happening? And those were like three three very different things oftentimes. So um, having to keep really, really close track on how much information each character had and how much information the reader had and what they would be suspicious of. All of that was a lot of work. And it was only because I was having so much fun that I was able to stay focused enough on the manuscript in order to, to pull that off. Whereas the books like, for example, you know, 300 Minutes of Danger was my kind of breakout success back in um, 2015. And I wrote nine more books in that series and those those are books of short stories and they're challenging in various ways, but it's not the same sort of challenge. I, I could, they are books of short stories about kids escaping from dangerous situations. So I could just go, okay, what's a dangerous situation? What's a clever way to escape from it? Um, how can I disguise the solution to the problem as just another problem to, to build the suspense? And then kind of you, you write it, you edit it, then rinse and repeat over and over. So I'm not going to say that I could write those books without paying attention to them because I, I did want them to be good, but I certainly didn't need to completely submerge myself in the stories in the same way as I did with this book. So that meant that this book, yeah, it was more exhausting, but it was also more fun and more kind of cathartic to write. But can, can I ask on that, though? Like, I mean, the word fun comes up quite a bit. And uh, like, certainly when people talk about the book, they talk about like, you know, it's fun, it's funny, it's all that. But it's also, as you've alluded to, deeply personal in a lot of respects and like like I found it at certain points quite um quite moving quite uncomfortable just in terms of like you know even even though like like it doesn't you know doesn't reflect my experience I'm not a murdered husband but I was like you know I've certainly <laughs> been in relationships that you know have been to one degree or another predicated on you know like a, a certain obfuscation of the truth from both parties and and you know self-denial and, and all of those things and so there were elements that I found uncomfortable in the best way because I was like oh god I get this too much or I've been here or you know which is which is what you want in a book like this but at the same time it is a huge amount of fun like so how do you how do you thread that needle how do you how do you make it fun while still making it you know uncomfortable and personal and real 
Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I tend to overwrite my first drafts a little bit, like, um, and this is sort of by design. If it occurs to me to put something in, I put it in. And so that means that the, the first draft, when I'm writing to kind of get something out of my system, then oftentimes that stuff ends up in the first draft. And then, but a lot of the things that are in the book because they are personal to me and my experience, but don't actually, you know, move the plot forward, they end up on the cutting room floor later. So, uh, for example, in this particular book, the um, the most uh, the most autobiographical character is probably Oscar. Um, Oscar is a, a guy who is um, struggling emotionally after the the birth of his son. So I had um, postpartum depression after my son was born, which was not something I even knew that men could get at the time, but it, it turns out they can. And um, so I put a lot of those experiences onto the page and mostly, um, so again, that, that kind of rides the line of that discomfort that you're talking about. Like uh, in some senses, Oscar is sort of, um, making his life, he's making the lives of his wife and son pretty miserable with his apathy and his cynicism and his nihilism and um, his irritability and all that stuff. Um, but he's also making himself miserable, which I think um, goes some way towards having the reader forgive him. So all that stuff stayed in. But when I, and by the way, I, I was only able to write this book because I, I felt like I had the full support and permission of my wife. Like when I was first, uh, I started writing it and realised pretty quickly how personal it was going to be. And I said to, to Venetia, I was like, look, people are going to read this and think it's us. And some of it is. So <laughs> how are we going to handle that? And she said to her eternal credit, she's like, just speak your truth. Write the book you want to write. We'll deal with that later. And so, um, so that 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 was enormously uh, freeing and uh, and a relief. So anyway, all that stuff stayed in. But then, when I was talking about um, Oscar's relationship with Isla, his wife, um, a lot of that stuff ended up on the cutting room floor, just because the the editors at the publishing house were like, "Hey, this thing, this way that Oscar is perceiving Isla." doesn't seem to fit with Isla's actions. And that's, it's not just like Oscar misinterpreting her. It, it seems like a, a clash of, of characters. Like it feels inconsistent rather than complex. You know how you want characters to be complex, but not inconsistent. It, it didn't feel that mm -hmm. way. And so in the course of that editing, I was like, oh, okay. That's because sometimes I slip in, I, I slip out of writing Oscar and Isla and slip into writing Jack and Venetia. And because mm -hmm. I am not, Oscar and Venetia is not Isla. That means it's not obvious to me when that happens, but it is obvious to the publisher. They're like, cut that out. That doesn't fit. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. That's because I was borrowing stuff from my own life because I wanted to express it, not because it actually fits the story. So if you're asking me how I ride that line, it's just with lots of editing and lots of feedback from other people. Like I'm happy to use my own personal details but only if they serve the story. And usually it's someone else who is the best judge of that. But it's it's funny. The, the other thing you sort of managed to do really well with this book is that like, it's like, I, and I don't know if this says something about me that's not great or if oh, I'm boy. supposed to feel this way <laughs> or whatever. But when I when I read the book and like, you know, reading the perspectives of the six, uh, the six people and the three couples who go away and, and all hell breaks loose, 
I didn't find any of them, like, like a lot of them I was reading, like Oscar's a great example. Cause I was reading it and I was like, yeah, on paper, this guy is unsympathetic, but, but reading it, I I'm like, I, I kind of feel for him and I kind of feel for all of them. Like there was not a single one of them whose perspective I didn't get, like who, who, who I didn't kind of understand why they felt that way. And which is and funny because one of them's a killer. Well, one <laughs> of them is a killer. Yeah. And not that you knew and, that at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, and, and I, I, I did obviously figure out at some point, one of these people is probably going to get a bit stabby stabby, but you know, that's, that's what you expect <laughs> from a cover like this and a title like this. But like, but I mean, you know, when, when I spoke about the shift in perspective thing that kind of really pulled me in before that, that was a shift from, um, I think it's Oscar's perspective to Felicity's perspective, like early on where like the way that Oscar sort of sees something or reacts to something is so at, at odds. And, and, you know, I found that really interesting, but, but I think what kind of worked about it was that like, even though, the more the book went on, the more I was like, Oscar's not a great guy. Like he's a bit of a jerk and, and all of this stuff. Like in that first chapter where he is kind of, you know, relaying his experience of how much he's been struggling since the birth of his son and how much he's kind of resenting his wife and all of these things. It was like, as much as I was like, yeah, I, I get that this is not great, but I kind of get it. Like I kind of feel for him a little bit. I can kind of see how he would end up where he's ended up. And then it's not until you see him from somebody else's POV that you go, Oh no, you're you're really just not a great dude, are you? Like you know, you're really just kind of like you know, you're really just being extraordinarily self-involved and not not really factoring anybody else into. But but I mean, but what I think is so expert about that is that's very true to like how in our own lives all of us self-justify, right? Like how all of us kind of will go mm -hmm. like you know, well you know, this makes sense, this makes sense, and this is this and this and this and this and this. And it's it's only when we you know we we kind of have to sometimes force ourselves to step outside of our narrow perspective of our own issues or the people around us in order to kind of encompass the fact that it might be more complex than just I'm hard done by and I'm having a crap time and everybody should feel sorry for me. But the the, the needle is threaded really really well, and I think it does like like hearing that Oscar you know, um, that a lot of that kind of comes from something personal, I think makes a huge amount of sense because it, the, the, the sympathy you somehow manage to evoke for these characters, even as they're saying and doing heinous things. And even as we're sort of realizing that they're not great people, the more it goes on, I think it's like a really, I, I suppose another expertly threaded needle in the case of this book. Mm. Well, uh, again, it's something that only came together with the editing, but I do think, uh, it's funny how when you get someone's inner monologue, that can make them both more sympathetic and less, depending on how um, how you go. I used to listen to the Snap Judgment podcast and I really liked it, but their, their kind of mantra was that it's impossible to hate someone once you know their story. And I, yeah. I think on the one hand, at the time, I supported that entirely. But in retrospect, I'm like, actually, sometimes you hate people more once you know their story. Like characters like Dom in this book, for example, I think, um, yeah, he's likable from some perspectives and unlikable from others. But it's kind of not until you get a window into his head that you're like, oh, actually, this is like a significantly worse guy than you might. Um, but maybe you should judge someone by their actions rather than their thoughts, given that, you know, your actions are something yeah. you have more control over, which is not to say that all his actions were perfect either. But, yeah, I, I was very interested in playing with kind of that idea of how, particularly in a, in a romantic relationship, like you can say whatever you want to a stranger because there are no consequences. You can kind of just walk away after the fact. And so that can lead to a level of honesty. Um, whereas if it's someone that you're, say, married to, then 
any mistakes you make in the conversation, if you if you say the wrong thing, there's there's a decent chance your partner will remember that for the rest of their lives. And so oh, yeah. that can mean that you have to be more careful in conversations, which can lead to hiding things, which can mean that the people you love actually become strangers to you because you're, you know, so afraid of opening up to them and they're so afraid of opening up to you. I think that's if there's a message in this book, and I didn't put one in deliberately, but I, I think it's kind of an, an endorsement of honesty and forgiveness, like the fact that you need to be willing to forgive your partner as much as you possibly can so as they feel safe enough to tell you what's actually going on in their heads. Because ultimately, if all these people had just been honest with one another from the beginning, no one would have gotten killed. Mm. <laughs> it's a good lesson. It's a good message. Just be honest. Come on, people. Yeah, it may have a title like Kill Your Husbands, but it's actually quite wholesome deep down. That's right. Honesty. Uh, Such a lonely word. Um, Now, I wanted to ask you, this is a broader question. This is probably um, more of a general question, but there's so much gore and there's so much... uh, betrayal and, uh, and and this goes for your books as well, Gabe. Um, and I'm sort of picking up on what you were saying just before. Jack was able to thread the needle and make it fun. What makes these books fun? What makes these, uh, you know, they're basically horrific <laughs> violence in, in parts. What makes that fun to read? And are you conscious of making this a fun journey when you're writing it? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe get both your takes on that. I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. Um, I think back to like watching, is it like one of the many, 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 many interviews where Quentin Tarantino was called out about his use of violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's some sanctimonious TV host kind of goes, you know, but why do you use violence so much? And he just goes, because it's so much fun. And he just like says it so unabashedly <laughs> and unapologetically. And, and like, and, you know, like, I think he's being facetious to a point because I actually like the older I get in the, I think, you know, the, the more his filmography has matured, the more that I think his what he's saying about violence has matured and is a lot more nuanced than I think people give him credit for. But at the same time, I think the key to that is like, you know, um, who is the violence happening to realistically, you know, mm. and you can't just write a book where the heroes are getting off scot-free and the villains are getting, you know, violently kind of messed up again and again and again, you know, the, the heroes have to suffer as well and you have to lose some heroes and all of that and everything. But like, I kind of go like, I, I try to pitch the violence in my books at such a level that it kind of is a little bit that Kill Bill thing where you don't quite take it seriously, you know? Like, and and my agent said that about The Hunted. Like, remember before The Hunted ever sold, when I sent it to her and I sort of raised with her, I was like, is the violence a bit too much? And she said, yeah, but at a certain point, it just becomes so absurd that you just sort of go with it and you just kind of, you know, mm. and that invites the ability like to Looney Tunes. Have, yeah, and, and like you know, not not Looney Tunes far, plus but... Looney Tunes plus Tarantino is the best way of That's describing right. Gabriel's books. Yeah, but effectively, yes. And but you know, like I don't know. I think that like I think about TV shows like like Banshee is one I always bring up as well, and everything. And then obviously Tarantino's work. Uh, you know, these or John Wick is another great example where it's kind of like you know, it, it doesn't quite take place in our universe. It's a bit heightened. You thread through kind of little winks to the audience that sort of say you know. You you can just kind of go along with the roller coaster ride of this and it, it's fine. Like, you know, I, I I think that like having a undercurrent of black comedy wherever possible does tend to help offset that. And, you know, I mean, if I ever wrote a book that was like, you know, in, I guess, let's say the Snowtown mold where it's like, you know, I'm really engaging with something terrible that actually happened or something that's supposed to be really evocative of real life. And I think that my 
approach to violence would be vastly different than it is currently. But because my books are effectively pulp and they are effectively schlock, it's like, you know, but, but, but the other thing I try to do really, and this is the other, this is my own needle I try to thread is that I believe wholeheartedly. And I think Jack's work is a prime example that this is possible that you can have pulpy schlocky sort of fun, you know, violent books for adults that also are about something that also have meaning that also have heart that also have humanity at the core of them and have, you know, like complex characters and uh, meaningful themes that can speak to an audience and all of that stuff. And I, I, I don't believe that those two things of like having thematic heft and semi-cartoonish violence are mutually exclusive. I, I really don't. And I think that Jack threads that needle as well. I think it's, it's a balancing act and it's a tricky thing to get right at times but I think that there are ample examples of how it can be done. And the reality is that there's always going to be audience members for whom the sheer existence of violence is going to be too much. You know, I mean, I had I had like a bunch of angry reviews from people about The Hitchhiker, you know, my Audible original, which is probably the least violent of any of my books. But there is one scene that is like quite, you know, quite horrifying. But it's it's one brief scene. Otherwise, the rest of the book is like pretty tame. And I remember seeing reviews from people being like, this is the goriest book I've ever read. And I'm like, this one like really the hitchhiker like try the hunted love like come on you know but but you yeah. know at a certain point like for some people it just is it, it, it is the case that like you know having any blood at all is going to be far too much and and that's okay that's their prerogative you know they don't they don't want to read things like that they don't have to read things like that but but i, I don't know i think i just try to pitch the violence in a way that it's sort of like it's it's palatable because it's not quite true to life yeah adrian's question about you know how to make it fun made me think of um uh, have either of you guys read a swim in the pond in the rain by george saunders no it's this terrific book so it's a collection of um short stories by the the russian masters so you know tolstoy and chekhov and um gogol and all that uh but after each story there's an essay by george saunders about the story and how it works because he um he's a booker prize winner but he also like teaches russian literature at syracuse university or somewhere but he talks a lot about um learning to kind of trust your instincts and kind of uh he he talked about you know having imagined like a um a, a fuel needle on your forehead or like a, a Geiger counter or something with positive on one side and negative on the other and that every slight change you make you then kind of just so you you make the changes more or less arbitrarily and then just see which way the needle goes like if if it flicks towards positive or negative so in a sense you don't need to know why it works you just need to know whether it works and you don't yeah. need to know why you like what you like you just need to like it and obviously what you like will kind of change over time the violence is a good example of that like in uh in the case of um I think it was, is it Die Hard 4 where like uh, John McClane um, beats the crap out of Maggie Q? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I I remember like really enjoying that scene when it came out in a way that I might not now. Um, mm. But again, I don't think that's not me taking a moralistic stance against violence against women. It's just me like knowing what I like and that it has sort yeah. of changed over time. There's a reason this book is called kill your husbands and not kill your wives. And that's not that I think husband murder 
is more shocking than wife murder. And it's not that I think, you know, it's more justifiable than the other. It's it's none of that stuff. It is just me paying attention to that Geiger counter on my forehead going like, this feels more fun than the other thing. But I'm aware that, so that positive and negative needle that George Saunders talks about, um, I would... Uh, I would say that for me, it, the needle is just fun and not fun. Like that's always what I'm focused on. Does does this make the book more fun for me to write? Well, more fun for me to read or less, whereas some other writers, their needle might be measuring something different, like how meaningful is it or how much likely, uh, what's the, the book, you know, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens? Um, yeah, yeah. Won the, the Miles Franklin. So that's a great book in lots of ways. But um, when I was reading it, I think um, Shankari Chandran's needle is on a different setting to mine in terms of the fact that it felt like that book was trying to express some some really interesting things about um, Australian culture and Sri Lankan culture and, you know, race and class and all sorts of interesting things. But it, it wasn't a fun, not fun needle. It was like a... a um, uh, uh, progressive is the wrong word, but like uh, meaningfulness, lack of meaningfulness needle or mm. something something like that. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what I like. I, I, I don't know why I like what I like. I just know that I like it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, we've taken up uh, a lot of these these wonderful writers' time, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to wrap things up pretty quick so you can get back to your uh, various projects. But um, oh, please just quickly... don't make me edit this book. This book's <laughs> yeah, been like... sitting there waiting for me to edit it for two weeks. It must be done. It. Are you I'm sure just we can't it's... just chat for the rest of the day? <laughs> Yeah, the chance to talk about as opposed to actually having to do right now is an incredibly enticing one that I'm happy to kind of continue embracing. So. Uh, well, uh, I, I, I'm sorry to say, work must be done. And in fact, current works, we've got The, the Caretaker, which came out this year from Gabe Bergmoser, which is unbelievably good. So check that out, everyone. And obviously, we've got Kill Your Husbands, which, uh, which Jack's just released. But I did notice that uh, both of you have been talking a little bit on social media about books that are coming up. In fact... Jack, you were doing NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, and uh, I noticed that you were working on a new one there. I, I think there was a there was a tentative title. Are you allowed to allowed to reveal oh, yeah, the yeah. tentative so title? So that book is called Choppy Water. Um, it's a yep. murder mystery set on a cruise ship. That's probably all I can tell you about it. But I nice. can also tell you that in NaNoWriMo, I think I made it to 20,000 words <laughs> and then a copy edit for a different book kind of dropped into my inbox. So I had to abandon my NaNoWriMo title. But yeah, so, so that won't be the next one. No, the next one comes out in February. It's a middle grade um, spy. Well, it's called Spy Academy, The Peak. And it's about a kid who gets recruited to study at a secret school for spies. And Gabe has a new middle grade coming out in February as well. Right, Gabe? Yes. Yeah, Tell us about that. We're going head to head, my friends. Um, yeah, no, I've got um, I've got Andromache Between Worlds coming out in February, which is my first middle grade book. And I'm so excited for it. It's like... um. Basically, you know, it's an adventure swashbuckling story about a girl trying to save her father from a parallel universe. So a little bit different from the, um, you know, the violent decapitation, scalping, you know, murder <laughs> stuff that I'm more well known for. But I mean, I'm, I'm super, super excited for that book. Um, but, um, but yeah, then I've got another Audible original coming out after that, which is the sequel to The Hitchhiker, which I'm really keen for. Nice. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely curious to see how that book's received, because it's like, there was a point about halfway through writing it. it it's actually, it's, I, I think weirdly it shares a lot of DNA with Kill Your Husbands because it's like, 
it's kind of a black comedy about relationships. And I didn't realize that until about halfway through writing it. And I was like, this is a sequel to like my kind of outback psychological thriller that is entirely like a pitch black comedy about, about a couple who have just told too many lies to each other and just absolutely hate each other because of it. And it all, you know, escalates into like, you know, violence and insanity and twists and turns and everything. So I have no idea how, how that's going to be received. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, it doesn't help that Jack set the gold standard for like, you know, resentful relationship <laughs> thrillers that end in murder here. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be watching with envy what you've been doing. Mm, fantastic well i can't wait to read that one too one of my favorite bits of the hitchhiker was the the driver and his relationship with his wife who is not really in the the present day story but the the way that is slowly that information is drip fed to the reader was was very exciting so i would gladly read a whole book of that gabe can't wait Uh, all right well it's brilliant to have been a spend some time with these two fine folk who've written some awesome books this year as i said caretaker just came out and kill your husbands just came out uh so perfect summer read so get on board people and thank you very much to gabe bergmoser for uh guest co-hosting and it's been awesome to chat with you and congratulations to jack on the very recent kill your husbands best of luck to both of you with your awesome new books thank you very much adrian thanks for having us and thanks for always good to see you as well gabe yes adrian good to see you too jack thanks guys Huge thanks to Jack and Gabe for joining me. And if you'd like your own copy of Kill Your Husbands, it's available now at bemorebookish.com and you can get a 20% discount with the code word MARRIAGE. Plus, as a special bonus, Gabriel Bergmoser's new book, The Caretaker, also has a 20% discount. But because it's centred around a ski resort, the code word for Gabe's book is simply SKI. Thanks for listening, and this festive season, surely all your gifts could be more bookish.